Hi there, you're listening to the podcast version of 3CR's Monday Breakfast Show. Catch us live every Monday at 7am at 855 on your AM dial, streaming 3CR on the TuneIn app or at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy the show. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations. True owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. On the line we've got... Senior Lecturer in Modern Chinese History at the University of Sydney, Dr. David Brophy. And we're going to be talking um, a little bit about Clive Hamilton's latest book on China, which is Silent Invasion. And in that, I guess uh, Clive Hamilton kind of talks about the compelling evidence of the Chinese Communist Party's infiltration of Australia and I guess, the impact of <coughs> what that means for um, for Australian kind of foreign policy and, and Australia in general. Uh, so we're going to have a chat to Dr. Brophy. Are you there, Dave? Yeah, hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. Um, so you, you've written an article kind of critiquing that for the Australian Book Review. Mm. Um, so do, do you want to go into, like, what what is the... What's Clive kind of talking about for those um, listeners that probably haven't heard or listened to his um, kind of take on it, read his book? What's his kind of um, argument that he's making? Yeah, I, I suppose listeners probably haven't had a chance to, to read the book yet, but people who've been watching the uh, the media over the last little while would have probably seen some of these stories about uh, Chinese influence in, in various forms, whether it's the case around uh, Sam Dastiari and his close relationship to some of the ALP's Chinese donors. We had a lot of stories about uh, Chinese students uh, on campus causing trouble for their lecturers, supposedly. Um, and then, of course, you know, there are a series of larger questions as well about China's rise and the implications that that has for us in Australia. People like Hugh White have been talking about uh, how um, how sustainable the U.S. alliance is going to be uh, in the coming period in which China, as it becomes the world's largest economy, uh, tries to see some kind of commensurate political role for itself, um, and particularly in in our region. And and so Clive takes a whole this whole sort of gamut uh, of, of different issues. He rolls it up into this narrative, in which he he would have us believe that there's a there's a concerted, organised campaign. Uh, coming out of China to, to turn Australia into some kind of tribute state. I mean, he he thinks that we're on the verge of becoming a, uh, a sort of a, a vassal state uh, of China. That there's an invasion uh, going on, and uh, he's one of the few people that can see it. He's sounding um, this this warning uh, about it. And there's a lot of other details in the book that that we could go into, but that's basically the um, the message. And um, now, I wrote the review because, well, for one thing, I think it's I think it's just wrong. Um, I don't think that China is you know, invading Australia or that we're on the verge of losing our independence uh, to to China. 
um, I, I think it, um, it it paints very black and white um, picture of the situation in which you're either standing up to China with Clive Hamilton or you're some kind of apologist for China. And, and he really sort of tars large sections of the, the policy and um, academic community as some kind of apologist or appeaser. He uses this kind of Cold War language, which is... Um, which is very troubling too, but um, I mean, I guess you know, on I guess... one hand, people would say that we lost our independence to the U.S. quite a while ago when it comes to foreign policy and the decisions we make in our kind of defence spending and defence um, initiatives overseas as well. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly when you look at military and foreign policy, the idea that we're, um, you know, we're closer to China than we are to the U.S. is is really a laughable proposition, but. See, Clive Hamilton doesn't really see things that way. He 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 seems to see things as, you know, we're an independent country <clears throat> um, that makes decisions, you know, to do things like ally uh, with the U.S. and any infringement upon that um, ability to ally with the U.S. would be some kind of uh, loss of sovereignty. But when you think about what the alliance actually is, I mean, that in and of itself is quite a significant uh, infringement on our sovereignty. It means that really the most important decision that a country can make when and where to use the, the military power that it has at its disposal, that's really taken out of our hands. Um, certainly that's been the lesson over the last um, the last few years that through the Iraq war, you know, our leaders are willing to, to lie to us to, um, to stay in the, uh, the good books of Washington and take us to um, the war with the, uh, with the U.S. I mean, if, if Hamilton thinks that, you know, we're only um, we're only sovereign insofar as we're um, we're dependent on the U.S. and that's really not uh, a form of at all. Yeah. Um, David Jackson here. I just want to know uh, what evidence, if any, does uh, Mr. Hamilton give for this so-called silent invasion of Australia? Mm. Well, the book has a lot of the book has a lot of. Um, Stuff in it. Um, there's various chapters dedicated to, for example, university collaboration with China, which he sees as all the way for China to steal our um, our intellectual property and our, our military secrets and so on. Um, he thinks that um, there's a whole sweep of people who've been bought off uh, among the elite, of course, including people like Paul Keating. Um, you know, who he now freely talks about as basically a Chinese agent. Um, Bob Carr, naturally, has been a bit of a whipping boy uh, in this, um, largely for the fact that he has um, he fronts an institute at University of Technology, Sydney, which was initially set up with Chinese money and, and tends to put a pretty boosterish um, picture of the, uh, the Australia-China uh, relationship. Um, out there. And obviously, you know, I don't necessarily see that as an ideal model for scholarship on China, but, but the idea that this is just some kind of uh, propaganda outpost for China um, is, again, sent to a ridiculous um, I- extreme. There's, you know, and, and it's all this sort of anecdotal stuff. Um, when you get down to it um, in terms of China's ability to actually influence policy outcomes in Australia, to really influence the decisions that get made uh, in Australia. I read the 300 pages of the book. I really couldn't find any convincing account of an episode in which 
Chinese interests had actually swayed the outcome of, of some kind of policy decision or, or anything like that um, to, to our detriment, let alone any, any democratic freedom that we'd lost thanks to China uh, or anything like that. Cloud Hamilton is convinced that China is intent on imposing its own political system on Australia, and and that's something for which I really find no evidence um, for at, at all. In, in fact, if we're at risk of losing democratic freedoms here in Australia at, at the moment, the, the threat is coming from the Turnbull government. When you you look at the new legislation that's being um, introduced around um, uh, foreign interference, that you know, that's been wrapped up with a whole lot of very draconian measures that would simply criminalise um, handling uh, information. If I was to tell you a rumour now um, that was, uh, you know, deemed detrimental to the national interest, you guys could all be um, prosecuted simply for receiving that that information. That's That, to me, is where the threat to... Um, our democratic freedoms is coming from right now, um, and it's it's ironic then that that Clive Hamilton is actually supporting these laws. Dave, you mentioned about the kind of Cold War era kind of um, narrative that this sort of brings mm. up, and I think mm. you know there's we've had uh, particularly in in Melbourne and Sydney for quite a while this negative kind of thing about Chinese investors buying up all property, and you know we see mm. um, I think it was around two years ago there was that Foxtel show um, Secret City, which um, scaringly forecast almost exactly what happened to Sam Dastyari with the mm-hmm. Labour politician and Chinese students and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's this real kind of scaremongering happening, which I think, yeah, in a lot of ways, like you said, really harks back to that Cold War era kind of politics. Mm. It seems yeah, really strange that that is coming back. And yeah, I just want to comment mm. on that. Yeah, look, I, I think that um, I think that there is um, I think that this does in some way reflect an anxiety about the um, the coming period. So we've had a rise in reportage around this kind of stuff as Trump has come to power in the U.S. And you remember the narrative around Trump initially was that he was very much America first. This was, um, you know, possibly going to lead to America not taking as much interest in Asia, um, possibly sort of pulling back from the, the confrontation with some extent. This creates anxiety among Australian elites who believe that without uh, the protection of America, we are um, we're in a vulnerable position here in Australia. And so to some extent, I see this, um, this increased optimism um, uh, around China as a way of um, showing to uh, America that, that Australia is willing to participate in a, a more confrontational stance towards China. And that then is a way of persuading America to, to stay in the game, to stay in the Asia-Pacific, um, and that we'll be, there, um, we'll be there with you. So, you know, alongside all of this um, stuff that's been in the media, we have had some concrete steps towards um, increasing collaboration with the U.S. military, so there are more Marines going into into Darwin now. They're now, you know, they're they're quite freely toying with the idea of participating in America's um, uh, freedom of navigation operations in the uh, in the South China Sea uh, or, or so on. And that is having diplomatic consequences. There has been some um, 
cooling in the relationship with China in the last little while. So, so I do think it is um, quite a dangerous period, and it's really not the time that we need to be stoking um, these fears of a, a Chinese invasion. Um, this is, you know, it's Max's Cold War um, history, but, you know, it, 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 uh, it goes deeper than that uh, in Australia. We, we have a long history of fears of uh, Asian invasion, and, and those fears have really uh, have buttressed some very um, nasty policies. Uh, in in the past, um, most obviously the the white Australia policy, but but generally speaking, you know there is a long history of anti Chinese racism uh, in this country. Well, it's been uh, great to talk to you today, and it's something that we've been talking a little bit about on the show over the last few weeks. So perhaps we could chat again another time. But unfortunately, we've run out of time today. So um, thanks a lot for joining us today. If you'd like to check out. Dr. David Brophy's article, we can check out the Australian Book Review online. Thanks a lot, Great. Thank, thanks very much for having me on, guys. Cheers. Bye. Celebrate International Women's Day with 3CR as we bring you 24 hours of awesome women and gender-diverse broadcasting. Check out our grid online at 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2018. Tune in from midnight to midnight on Thursday the 8th of March for women and gender diverse news, views, arts, science, music, current affairs, talkback, community languages and much more. In front of the mic, on the panel and behind the scenes on International Women's Day at 3CR, Women Run Things. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM on your radio dial. The time is 36 past 7. And we're now joined on the line by Rosa McKenna, who's a member of the Spotswood and South Kingsville Residents Association. Good morning, Rosa. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jackson. So, Rosa, you live in Spotswood. What can you tell us about the impact of the Westgate Tunnel Project, the impact it's going to have on you and other locals in the area? Um, well, the impact um, on us is uh, fairly significant. Um, it will uh, damage our local sporting grounds. So we have three, um, the football club, the cricket club and the um, golf club. If you go over the Westgate Bridge, you look down and you see uh, Stony Creek um, Park and those clubs and uh, Donald McLean um, uh, Reserve. So the the ramp coming up from um, Hyde Street will um, run alongside the freeway and take some of that land and create um, pylons and overshadowing of, of what is pretty um, scarce um, open space in our suburb. So we've got a really rapidly growing suburb with uh, densification occurring and very little open space for people to um, you know, to use. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, all of our arterial roads that lead to the freeway, so Melbourne Road, Douglas Parade, Millers Road, all of those north-south roads running across that take people to um, Footscray or those people who live in Williamstown and Newport, they need to get out of the peninsula. Um, those roads are already congested. 
and we think, and I think some of the expert uh, witnesses at the um, EES hearings recently or at the end of last year showed that these roads will become really congested. This will be exacerbated by um, the truck bans that will be placed on Maribyrnong roads. So trucks will be banned from using Maribyrnong roads, but they'll be funnelled to Miller's Road in, in Brooklyn. So while one suburb is going to have have fewer trucks, other suburbs in Hobson's Bay will, will bear the brunt of a, of a larger group of trucks on their roads. Yeah, so it seems to me the, the impetus behind this project is to move trucks out of the inner west of Melbourne. I think there's around 10,000 trucks a day go down Francis Street in Yarraville. And I know the mm-hmm. Andrews government went to the election in 2014 uh, promising to build a western distributor, which was a number of ramps to kind of allow those trucks to go from the west gate to the port. What happened to that original plan? Why has it been... I think that original plan was only $500 million. This new plan is $5.5 billion. Oh, 6.7 now. $6.7 billion now. So what happened to that original plan? Why have they made this, this shift? And, and why didn't they get a, a mandate from the public at an election for this major roads project, considering the end of the Napthine government just a few years ago? Well, very good question. So what happened to it? They built stage one, which was the ex- extension, which was the expansion of the Shepherd's Bridge and that um, area around there is, is certainly very much improved by those roadworks that have now finished. That was stage one of what was called the Westgate Distributor. Um, somewhere between 2014 and 2015, um, Transurban came along with a plan um, to, to, to build this particular infrastructure. But in its design phase, it seems to have grown exponentially. So in 2015, we had choices of short tunnels and long tunnels and some concept designs. Then we got to a reference design and then we got to a project design from the tenderers that were um, hired by Transurban to actually construct the uh, road. So it's it's grown exponentially. um, And while we're very badly impacted, the people closer to the city will also be hugely impacted. So um, the the road takes you nowhere. The road takes you into the city. And so we know as Melbourne City Council are trying to reduce traffic coming in, uh, people coming in by car. Um, so we, we believe West Melbourne and North Melbourne will be in constant um, peak hour congestion um, after this road is built. Um, it also builds an elevated road on uh, Footscray Road, so we've got a, a virtual boulevard when we could have a real boulevard. The question's got to be asked. our waterways. <laughs> Rosa, I'm, I mean, the, the, the West is definitely growing. Um, there seems yes. to be consensus that we need a way to move these trucks out of the area. Any kind of roadworks is going to cause disruption to a suburb. I mean, yep. do you have any ideas that, that, that could mitigate that? I, I feel like no matter what road project gets built, there's going to be well, major I think, disruption. I think, I think you're making a mistake in thinking the problem will be solved by roads. So one of the things that we can do is get people who are in single cars travelling on the freeway into public transport and leave the roads to those that need to use them. The second thing we can do is that we can put a great deal more freight on rail. So again, that's big infrastructure projects. Already the Port Rail Shuttle is um, under tender and we should know whether that's going to be built in April. That'll take 4,000 trucks off the road. Um, Sorry, where is this this rail going to go, this new rail from the the port? 
the port rail shuttle is an idea of um, putting freight from the port onto um, trains that go to Altona um, near the airport and another base in Dandenong. So the idea is that you, the goods that you that need to be distributed go to distribution points, and then from there they go by smaller truck, you know, to do their deliveries and so on. But but the, some of the bulk um, freight will be put onto our rail. Hi, Rosa. It's James here. I think, I guess one of the issues I think around, um, you know, I guess the funding models of whether to put that towards road and, and cars and things like that as opposed to transport is how do we shift the conversation in people's minds as well to be able to think about using public transport instead of driving their car? And I guess well, I wonder, yeah, what, what are your um, ideas on, because it's not just a matter of one or the other with the funding. It's I feel like there's a big push that we need to make within people's well, heads to thing use called, the space. There's, yeah, there's a thing called the Integrated Transport Act. So had, these, had all of these projects been planned so that the integration of how they fit together within the system, then we wouldn't have these one-off types of projects and we wouldn't have this road versus public transport sort of discussion. Um, there are people in the community who are working towards um, a better idea of how we actually make this system work. So the Friends of the Earth have got a uh, Get On Board campaign going at the moment where they are asking people to answer the very question you've just asked, how do we get a, um, a shift in, our, in the way that we think about public transport? How do we get the public involved in policy making around uh, transport issues. So they've got a major campaign going on at the moment and you can go to a website called Get On Board and see what that says. I guess as someone who uses public transport a lot, one of the mm. issues is that, you know, it's quite expensive and, you know, it's very unreliable. Um, you know, particularly my train yeah. line is often the trains are cancelled or they skip stations and things like that. And, you know, that's yeah. something people want to be able to use the service that so they can also well, this, rely on um, as well. This, this Get On Board plan has ideas for more frequent services, um, longer trains, um, more stations, particularly in the West, uh, better bus connections to take people to the stations. Um, I think people want certainty. They want regularity um, and frequency. Um, so if we put the same amount of money into improving the rail and bus systems, particularly in the other suburban areas, um, then I think people would more willingly use public transport and there would be a capacity for the public tra transport system to provide that service. But at the moment we've got a capacity problem in, in some places and uh, we don't have very frequent or regular um, services. Yeah, it's definitely um, something that experts are agreeing with you on this, Rose. I should mention there has been a 30-page report written by a number of um, urban planning experts from RMIT and mm -hmm. University of Melbourne saying that this project will not deliver the outcomes that it says it will, the Westgate Tunnel project. So if people want to get a bit more information about, I mean, the Spotswood and South Kingsville Residents Association sounds like a community group. I'm sure there's other groups uh, working towards bringing attention to these issues as well. Where would you recommend they mm -hmm. have a look online? Um, well, we've got a, um, a Facebook site called Better West and we're establishing a new one called No Westgate Tunnel. Um, so maybe that's the one to go to. Um, so um, sign on and we'll 
try and keep information up. But there are a number of groups all around Melbourne who are beginning to work out that building more roads won't solve this problem. So the North East Link people and their community groups are having rallies and so on in the next couple of weeks. Um, Friends of the Earth, as I said, have the Sustainable Cities campaign which includes a transport component because we don't have sustainable cities unless we have a good transport system. So their website is also a really good one to get um, some information about campaigns. Um, It's probably worthwhile drawing to your attention that um, this is not a done deal yet. On Wednesday, the Liberal and uh, Greens will um, vote together to try and revoke the planning permits for this particular project. Um, the government says it will go ahead anyway, but it does beg the question about why you have planning permits if you can just uh, not use them if you don't want to have them. Um, and they have also asked for the documentation around the relationship with Transurban and the government to be um, tabled in Parliament so we get a look at the agreements that the government has already signed mm. um, that locks, that locks um, Victoria... Um, into a future pipeline of projects that are hidden in this contract uh, with Transurban. So it's really important that we stop this project now because we're going to lock Melbourne in, into a road future, not a public transport system or a transport system future. I'm um, sure it's a, an issue we will touch on again. But thank you very much for joining us this morning and, um, yeah, good no luck worries. with the campaign. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Yes, thank you to Nibs, as always, for the support of Monday Breakfast and all the other breakfast programs on 3CR. Up next, of course, is our weekly segment, Over the Wall, and this week, Over the Wall continues its series on welfare policy changes that have impacted soul mothers. Last week on Over the Wall, we heard from Emily Wolfinger, academic writing on soul parents and effects of neoliberalism and also media portrayals of soul mothers. Last week, Emily spoke about the Howard government policies. This week, we listened to Emily discuss the Abbott era and also the Gillard government policies toward soul mothers and its impact upon those members of our community. My name's Emily Wolfinger and I'm a special academic doing a PhD looking at online user perceptions of soul mother poverty and welfare in Australia. Emily, 
And the Abbott government's paid parental leave scheme focused the discourse on worthiness of welfare mm. to people contributing at higher levels to the economy. <coughs> at the same time, how did the situation of single mothers fare under the Abbott government's policy? I guess Abbott, like Howard, promoted a model, you know, the model of the nuclear family by his policies, which rewarding women of calibre, older mothers who had partnered and had children later in life. In contrast, in the 2014 budget, when Abbott was in power, his government outlined a plan to stop paying family tax benefit Part B to families when their youngest child turned six, a payment that heavily relied upon by sole parents. Former Treasurer Hockey proposed the changes under the Abbott government being in the national interest as he quoted, the age of entitlement was over. How did policymakers determine what was the national interest and stereotype entitlement through that? Well, cutting welfare in the national interest, which is what Hockey was referring to, certainly the, the narratives that's put forward, but certainly debatable. Essentially, I think by talking about cuts to welfare as being in the national interest, Hockey was drawing on a narrative of welfare, of welfare as a drain on the taxpayer. So in other words, it's a drain on each and every one of us, the hard-working, good economic citizens, you know, who participate in paid employment. It's in our interest, it's in our national interest, in terms of the impact on the economy. It just doesn't make sense, even if you stuck with their line of thinking, because their line of thinking of good, hard-working citizens, like today, 6,000 hard-working citizens have been retrenched by one company, and are they no longer deemed as worthy? Yeah. So neoliberalism is a primary focus of, of modern economic policies, with the ideal that citizens must become active participants in, in the marketplace, primary responsibility is to the economy and how has this neoliberalism ideal failed to recognise the obstacles to economic participation faced by single mothers? Yep, sure. Well, I would argue that neoliberal ideology is essentially based on masculine principles, self-reliance and individual responsibility. I think these values are at odds with the reality of caring work which is a predominantly female experience. Because the emphasis under neoliberalism is on individual responsibility, you know, emphasis on economic participation, self-reliance and personal responsibility, structural barriers to women's employment are not always acknowledged. What are some yeah. of those structural barriers? First and foremost, we know that women are most likely to do the overwhelming share of household work, including caring work. Now, we know that this impacts women whilst they're in relationships in terms of their participation in the workplace. So, for example, women generally are most likely to be engaged in part-time or casual work. This has an impact on women's earnings, earning capacity, and so that when relationships break down, often women find themselves in a precarious situation in terms of their finances. Now, in terms of navigating the workplace, in terms of sole mothers navigating the workforce, this care, this load of care continues, continues after relationships break down. And this creates difficulties in terms of sole mothers then being able to manage the tensions between their caring responsibilities and their working responsibilities. 
In terms of the impact of caregiving on women's economic participation, it has an impact in terms of their earning capacity, where they take time off work and so on. Women find themselves parenting alone after relationship breakdown. The uh, situation is that they're on a much lower income. This dramatically impacts on their financial security. So these are just some of the examples. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, 2012, 20% of Australian families are headed by single parents, four and five of whom are women. They must face Um, some of the most severe examples of what's termed as the working poor in that situation, of being a single mother doing casual or or part-time work as they pay solely the costs of house bills perhaps for a period of time and also prescription costs for their kids as well as themselves if they're not receiving any other payments? Well absolutely. It's much harder I think for those with dependents because they do have the additional burden of having to care for children and that this does impact not only on their work but in terms of what they're putting out financially. So how does uh, Centrelink and the social welfare system deal with that particular situation? in terms of soul mothers being able to meet those needs. Yes, support for soul mothers in those particular times of, say, crisis after a a separation and taking on the burden of all bills and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that for single mothers whose youngest child is, you know, eight or over, this is a particularly difficult time if they're not engaged in full-time employment or employment that's going to pay them enough in situations where perhaps their partner doesn't continue to help with the financial support of children after relationship breakdown. So it's particularly difficult for those women. In terms of what Centrelink does for those women, they do very little except where single parents might be facing domestic violence. In that case, there are emergency payments provided to those women in in difficult situations. And if there wasn't a reportage of domestic violence but the partners had separated and the woman who continued to do the parenting wasn't receiving any money at all. She has no extra support or no means to apply specifically within Centrelink for help. No, no, as far as I know, beyond the emergency payment, you know, for women leaving domestic violence, they have to join the queue, like other sole parents, to wait for the sole parent payment, you know, mm. uh, to come through. So, you know, unless they go to charities, basically that immediate support or of course their families they might find themselves in a very difficult situation and of course we saw this play out last year with regards to for the first time in so many years the overwhelming majority of people seeking uh, homelessness services were women previously to that and for many years it had been men and that most of the women accessing these homelessness services were fleeing domestic violence and many had children with them so obviously in terms of how this situation impacts on for parents, we are seeing you know, homelessness where women aren't able to connect quickly with their income support. Women's poverty, which is largely mother's poverty, becomes evident when relationships break down. Uh, so women's, we know that women's household income drops by about 21% following separation, whereas men's income is generally unchanged and in fact steadily increases over the years following separation. You know, unpaid child support, only 40% of mothers who receive child support uh, report child support paid in full. This is a public service announcement. 
Good morning, everybody. We are joined in the studio by Laura Beniak, who is an organizer with the National Union of Workers. Good morning. Uh, Laura is here to talk to us about Davies Bakery, who are based in Broadmeadows and make baked goods for the major supermarkets, Woolworths, Coles and Aldi. Thank you for joining us this morning. No worries. So, Laura, could you fill us in a bit on what some of the experiences of workers have been at Davies Bakery over the uh, last little while? Yeah, certainly. Um, So I've been going out to Davies Bakery for going on two years now. Um, As you mentioned, they make a lot of baked goods for Coles, Woolies and Aldi. Um, And over that two years, I met a lot of workers who have unfortunately shared an experience of being injured at work um, and then being basically bullied out of the job that they had, um, you know, to avoid their liabilities under work cover. So when you say that they have an injury... There's then, I suppose, a normal process that a worker in a workplace would go through to have that injury dealt with. What is the standard process and what happened to these workers at Davies Bakery? Yeah, sure. Um, So usually if you're injured at work, you um, have the option to apply for work cover or not, depending on what your, um, you know, the path you want to go down. Um, And through that, you're entitled to be paid for any medical expenses and any time you have to spend away from work. Um, Where that process can fall over, though, is in workplaces where workers don't have a lot of power. Um, Ultimately, their life at work is controlled by their employer. Um, And if their employer is not being fair and reasonable, um, they've got a lot of power to make your life very difficult uh, and limit your ability to actually enforce those rights. So what what are some of these ways they can be limited and what was the experience of some of these workers specifically? Um, So Davies has a a high migrant workforce um, and those workers often didn't know the work cover existed. Um, There's, you know, a lot of rumours that you don't get another job if you have claimed work cover in the past. Um, And as well as that, if you've got an employer saying, oh, the, the company doesn't like people putting work cover claims in, if you've seen your friend's lose their position at work, um, have a very difficult time, be told not to talk to other workers, then you're pretty unlikely to want to go down that path yourself. And what's the, is, is that a bit of a legal grey area to give workers that kind of advice or put that kind of pressure on them when, they're, when it's clear there's been an injury and the employer can tell that the employee is considering a work cover claim? What's the the law around yeah, that? Absolutely. Um, in theory, you're not allowed to be disadvantaged putting in a work cover claim. Um, unfortunately, if you've got no power at work, those rights, like many rights, like your rights to a minimum wage, like your rights to um, you know a safe workplace, effectively don't exist. You can only enforce your rights when you've got some power and workers who are individually targeted have no power. That's why unions are so important and why we're working so hard to unionise Davies. Yeah, I, I was um, interested in, I guess, that point in where there's a workplace that, um, you know, workers are having to operate in, in a way that is, you know, dangerous for their their safety and they're not sure about their kind of legal rights and things like that. You know, how was the union able to, um, like, were you given really um, the access to be able to talk to um, workers there and, you know, what kind of... Um, you know, issues might the union have faced, like being able to try to organise people there? Yeah, sure. So Davies is 
a very good example of something that we're seeing more and more of in the food industry and in the farms industry as well, of increasingly hostile employer reactions to workers trying to organise. Um, usually these, org- these workers are just seeking to negotiate a collective agreement and honestly the companies behave as if we're trying to steal their firstborn. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they, um, you know, we've had security guards threatening our organisers. We've had, um, you know, a lot of, uh, like, s- supervisors sitting behind us while we're trying to talk to workers. Every worker that we've signed up at Davies has been at their own house because it's too terrifying for them to actually join the union in their lunchroom. And this is not unusual for food workplaces and for farming workplaces today. Yeah, I see this kind of feeds into a larger campaign that the NUW are working on at the moment, looking at the supply chain for major supermarkets, which is, you know, something that almost, I would argue, so many working Australians would come into contact with in their working week, those supermarkets working in to grab something. How would you describe the atmosphere in the industry overall from the union's perspective? Are there a lot of workers in the supply chain being mistreated or pressured in this way? Yeah, absolutely. It's a highly, highly casualised industry. It's an industry where because the work goes up and down, workers feel very, very vulnerable about their position um, and they don't want to do anything that might prejudice their position with their employer. Um, and, you know, it for a long time being part of a union has helped protect against that but for a lot of these workers their feeling is if they are seen to talk to the union in the lunchroom if they are seen to sign a joint form in the lunchroom that they're going to get punished one way or another I guess there's the Hazeldeans and the farmers um, story that was on Four Corners uh, I think a couple of years ago that the NUW has been involved in as well like I guess being a part of that uh, as Jackson said that, that kind of line of when before things get to the supermarket and you've seen um, there's been intimidatory kind of tactics used in um, Hazeldeans and around the workers in Bendigo and stuff as well that yeah. for NEW um, organisers. And, you know, obviously in Australia we have a right to be a member of union, you have a right to organise, and, um, you know, it seems more and more we're having these kind of um, fundamental human rights questioned and taken away from us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think... As unions, we've got to get more creative in response to that. Um, you know, we've got lunchroom access and that's fantastic and that means we can talk to workers and, um, you know, at least, you know, take those first steps, make sure they understand what a union's about, um, even if they're not going to interact with you in the lunchroom. Um, but, yeah, more and more, you know, probably every night of the week there are union organisers and union activists out there having meetings in their homes and in cafes and, you know, they, I talk to workers who live in caravan parks and who live in their cars and they are still, you know, they build their hope off collectively organising and unionising as the way to improve their lives. Um, so I don't want it to seem like it's all doom and gloom. It is hostile, but it's not the most hostile that the union movement's ever faced. And, you know, we've got amazing workers like Nahid who's just joined us who are willing to stand up and um, really try and change the lives of the workers that they stand next to every day. Good morning, Nahid. Thank you for joining us. Always. Thank you for having me. You've battled the Melbourne traffic? Yes. (laughs) 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 I was stuck in uh, Nicholson Street. Oh, it's great for you to join us. Um, We had a bit of a rundown from Laura, but perhaps in your own words, you could tell us a bit about your time at Davies Bakery and the reasons that you uh, ended up leaving that organisation. Yeah, sure. Um... 
so I I was working in um, in a very <laughs> hostile environment in Davis Bakery in terms of uh, uh, the 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 situation that workers didn't have any idea about their rights, um, very basic rights, um, and if someone wants to uh, get information and knows about the situation and wants to take an action, it looks very impossible. Um, so for me, joining to union was uh, the first step. Um, and it was really difficult because the the manager was not just against union in a very clear way. Um, so we needed to do uh, many things in the same time to organize and to stop other workers being afraid of union and also start trusting union. So to me it was different because many people just thinking they are lying. So it was a rumor in between workers from the manager mm-hmm. and before that stopping workers to talk to union. So we had the lunch room that uh, it was the only chance we can see organizers from union, but it wasn't a chance. Mm. It was a kind of anti-chance. <laughs> because, so you go to lunchroom and you see the organizers and like to me, I didn't know what is union doing like in Australia as an immigrant. Um, I didn't know what's the difference of NUW or other unions. I didn't know what is union in general meaning. So when they come, you need to have basic information to be brave (laughs) to go to talk to them. Like you know they are good people, they're coming to help you. So at the first place, when you are stopped to talk to uh, organizers, other steps are very difficult because mm. you, at the first place, you have to go and hey, hey, or when they come to you, you don't see any eyes around you or around the organizer because you understand what's going on. So when someone comes to you and says hello, and three supervisor uh, bring their papers and their pens and start writing or looking at you or their phone, so. Mm. <laughs> So it's very being, obvious. You're being watched and monitored yes, while you're speaking. Yes, all the time. The lunch room, all the time was watched, and it's like not only one supervisor or two. When they knew that they're coming, they were coming as well, before and after. Wow. Um, so you go to lunch room and you see the situation. It's really impossible to talk to organizers, um, and then maybe sometimes someone can do that. And so you can, at the first place, build a, a little bit relationship with them. Or just I'm just talking about giving m- number. That's it. As simple as that. Mm. You're not going to talk about union and stuff. Mm. Just just giving a number. Mm. It's difficult. Mm. It's really difficult. 
And now that you've started those conversations and you've taken action um, to stand up and speak, when you talk to your colleagues that are still at Davies, has, has the situation for them changed through, through your action of standing up and making some noise about these issues? Um, I mean, it's more, uh, you, to me, meaning of union is more about collective action. It's more about all workers have the right and have the chance and have the opportunity to talk mm. and to be organised. So, to me... We did very small thing to just show that there are lots of things to do in Davis Bakery, mm. but the first thing we have to have is the chance to talk to workers, is the chance to let them know, not let them know, they already know. So we need the chance, a very safe, friendly situation that no one is scared. Um, we just have the opportunity to talk to each other. That's it. Mm. For having this kind of opportunity, um, we need them to help us, like workers, and start giving and getting the information from each other and talking about the situation. But we are doing this stuff just to make the pathway easier for workers. Mm. We make these kind of things. We don't think uh, as one person or two people or three or four, we can make a big change. But we are hopeful that uh, this work site understands that workers have the very basic right to be organized and to be unionized. Um, I must ask, I, no- I noticed that Davies Baker w- Bakery was, it was a kind of small family business years and years ago, but recently it was taken over by a private equity giant, Pacific Equity Partners, in 2016. Nahid, did you find conditions for workers got better or worse? I don't know whether you were there at, at that time during the, the changeover of ownership. I think I, w- I get employed after the change, I guess. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, and I think that's a good point. You know, you, you talk to people about a bakery and people might be thinking about, you know, your corner shop, but this is a place that makes tens of millions of dollars a year and they still can't, you know, find it within themselves to pay the minimum wage. Um, and, yeah, these companies are growing and they are, as you say, you know, companies that you walk into Coles and Woolies and you think, I can buy food and I'm not going to be participating in exploitation. Um, that's absolutely not the case. Um, more and more, if I go into a non-union site, I'm shocked if they're p- paying the minimum wage appropriately. And I guess the thing with, um, you know, the big supermarkets have completely monopolised the chain of where all of their food is coming from. And, you know, more and more now, as you go into any of the supermarkets, that, that brand probably owns the majority of the things they're selling as well. And, you know, I guess we probably don't have time to go into the union practices of the SDA and the... Um, people that are working at the supermarkets themselves, and I think that's a whole other kind of thing. But, yeah, I think that, that's obviously affecting people right down the line to the people on the farms, to the factories and things as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, these companies sign ethical supply agreements with Coles and Woolies um, that nominally allow for, you know, protect the right to associate with the union of your choice. Um, but... I don't think any of them understand what a positive right to freedom of association actually means and that if you are being hostile to your workers, if you are sending out security guards to threaten the organisers on site, mm. um, then, you know, that's not freedom of association. Uh, forgive me my ignorance here, but I would have thought, you know, there's a minimum wage 
Is it not illegal to not to not to not pay people the, the minimum wage? It is, but um, much like your access to work cover, your ability to enforce your minimum wage totally depends on your relationship with your employer, unless you're unionised. So well, I was at a place last week where workers told me, "Oh, yeah, we don't get afternoon shift loading because we're casuals and we don't work as hard as a day shift." <laughs> so it's just it's it's that blatant, um, and it's. Is there government departments that look into uh, this? I, I, and I know that there is a, a glut of wage theft. You know, yeah. I, I, I read this in the papers, and um, I have a relative who works for the Fair Work Ombudsman, and you know, it's surprising to me that there's so much money not being given to workers. Is there are unions working with the government to try and fix this issue? Yeah, I think when you look at the resources of the ombudsman versus the resources of the food sector in Australia, you see the scale of the problem and that, you know, you can throw in funding, but ultimately, you know, it's hard enough when we know the workers and they're willing to tell us the story. It's still hard enough to get those companies to actually lift their wages to where they should be um, for the ombudsman who doesn't have those relationships with the workers, for workers who, you know, are pretty unlikely to report it, quite honestly, because they're just happy to have a job. Um, that's not going to fix the problem. Only workers organising and watching each other fight and watching each other win is going to ultimately fix the problem and get people above the minimum wage because it's not where you want to be. It's not. It doesn't provide you a good life. Mm. We think we saw the, um, you know, changes to people receiving penalty rates, and I think, you know, someone who's worked in those kind of industries a lot over the past and. I think many people who work in casualised work could say the penalty rates would be great, you know, <laughs> let alone taking those away. And, you know, the across a lot of industry that that is something that, um, you know, is a fight that really needs to be taken up, I guess. And I guess going back to, um, you know, John Howard bringing in the work choice laws and then the kind of successive kind of things that have happened since then, the changes to that and whatever, that we're, we're left to today where... Um, unions are having to fight to remain a uh, you know, source of, of being able to organise in and to get that voice for people that, you know, like you said, that there's a lot of kind of um, negative comments about people don't know what rights that they do have in the workplace or ri- what rights unions have to organise and to be recruiting people in workplace situations. We're just going to take a short break to pay some CSAs. Are you guys happy to hang around till yeah, the end of the show? Sure. Listeners, do not forget 3CR, International Women's Day, Thursday the 8th of March. Talk Back With Attitude, 10 till 11, an all-women's affair for the day. So call in on 94190155. We would love to have some attitude from all the women out there and wish them all a happy International Women's Day. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. We are in the studio with Nahid Parisa and also Laura Beniak. And Will has joined us again. Hello, Hello. Will. Hey. <laughs> so, Nahid, um, just in the break there, we were talking a bit about, through your experience, what do you think is the most important thing to change within workplaces like Davies and other workplaces where some of these basic rights are being denied or 
Yeah, I think uh, health and safety issues in work sites is really, really important, specifically in Davis Bakery, because it's my experience. Um, having the information that workers have the right to have a representative as a HSR, it's very important. Workers should know they have this right in the act and they they can choose the person, they can have the election because we didn't have this kind of rights in Davis Bakery. I uh, directly asked them and they said no. <laughs> if even we want to have a HSR, we choose not workers. So I really want this issue to be very clear for workers to know what they can do uh, based on the act. And also, if we have a HSR, I really uh, want to say a HSR from union is really different from other kind of uh, training courses because uh, when you are a delegate or when you are a HSR, you know uh, your work, your co-workers, you are together and you taking action as a collective. But I, I'm not sure about other training courses and how they uh, think HS, uh, health and safety is important because to me it's very important to know that it's based on the system. The fault is from the system, not from the injured worker. Because all the time the um, managers uh, trying to uh, make this comment for the injury that someone someone was making mistake or they are they were not careful enough or they were careless or next time don't do it mm. but it's not like that it's based on the system the the old machinery of Davis Bakery mm. the minimum wage is one thing and also the old machinery and the old system that needs workers to work harder and carelessly, but in mm. a in a meaning that I don't understand what does that mean, because mm. you have to run and you have to keep the KPI uh, all the time updated, so mm -hmm. you need to be careless based on the system. So the injury is... Yeah, this is something happening. that I've actually experienced in my workplace where um, it's part of the... Um, like the official training, that there's no such thing as an accident. It's only failure to comply <laughs> with safety standards. Um, that's not the exact language that's used, but it's actually an official part of the training. Do you find that the messaging, you've talked about the way that the managers speak to you, um, sort of putting blame onto workers for their own injuries. Is that um, just a, like a cultural thing between managers and staff, or do you find that's something that's embedded in training and in um, the workplace? I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a cultural thing because... Mm. Uh, it's kind of workers think that they have to blame themselves and each other to be stupid, mm. to be... Mm. Uh, so they don't think that the fault is from somewhere else. The, the All the time, like the very big accident happened in Davis Bakery, and the first reaction of manager was the stupidity and carelessly of the worker. Mm. So when it's like this, other workers want to follow this kind of reaction because they don't want to be attacked by the manager. Mm. And then they don't claim their work cover because they blame themselves. Like mm. it took me one year to claim my work cover because I didn't know about work cover. No one told me about work cover and also they lied about work cover. Wow. And also the, the reaction of the uh, injury was that, hey, Nahid, you were careless. Yeah, yeah, so next time don't be careless. Okay, thank you. I won't be. <laughs> yeah, and we're seeing this sort of stuff more and more to the extent of even like lost time 
injuries will impact on the bonuses that an entire warehouse will receive and that you know so that collective is, punishment yeah exactly yeah. which you know means that people aren't going to report things so what was the incident that happened to you and and if you don't mind talking about it um yeah what what, what happened and 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 how were you eventually able to receive support so I answered the second question <laughs> because I uh, did uh, claim the uh, work cover only because of union, mm-hmm. like really, really only because of union, because mm-hmm. of Laura. <laughs> Simply, I didn't know I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they they gave me wrong information um, and they stopped me from claiming that. And then Laura said, as easy as that, no, it's not like this. You can claim and you can get some cover from uh, workplaces. It's your right. You mm. can get that. So it's very easy. Um, um, my injury was for, uh, for my right shoulder. Um, mm. It was soft luxation. So mm. my right shoulder was popping out and popping in by itself. Oh. Um, in driving, in everywhere. I had problems in working. Um, and then I had surgery. But the reason it happened was I uh, the step... Uh, in, uh, I was uh, standing on the step and the step fell over and so mm, and you fell yeah, yeah. no I, I was kind of suspended because I was uh, holding a frame oh. not to fl- fall over on God. the floor so my shoulder couldn't horrible yeah mm. so mechanical failure essentially yeah. led to led to the injury um, yeah and, and now after after lots of things union and mm. uh, um, the the report of the accidents because of those, now workers telling me there is a very good uh, environment around that place, mm. so no worker has the chance to fall over. And this is the thing we want for everywhere, everyone and mm. everywhere, mm. to prevent the accident. Absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you both, Nahid and Laura, for coming in and speaking to us about this really important issue and giving us some insight into the experience of workers in the supermarket supply chain, which I think is something relevant to all listeners. Um, I just want to take a moment uh, to talk about International Women's Day, uh, which is coming up on the 8th of March. Uh, Here at um, 3CR, we are having 24 hours of continuous uh, female broadcasting. That's right, by women and women-identified people. all throughout the day, starting from 12 a.m. in the morning till 12 12 a.m. at night. Uh, I have to know that uh, for two hours from 7 a.m., we'll have the the Thursday Breakfast crew coming on and uh, giving us some special programming during that slot. So, you know, we've still got a breakfast show lined up for you, and it's going to be great. It goes for two hours as well, so you get an extra half hour for for your buck as well. So uh, make sure you're tuning in. Um, and then we've also got all sorts of things. As early as 1 o'clock, hip, hip, on the 8th of March, Hip Sister Hop is going to be playing their, their Wicked tracks, so definitely tune in for that one. Um, later in the day, um, across the community, you can listen t- if you're part of the Armenian community from 8pm. There's going to be um, programming around in, um, International Women's Day. Women in Jazz at 3.30 um, in the afternoon, so tune in all day. It's going to be classic. Great content all day. I must ask Nahid as well. You're wearing a fantastic T-shirt that says, uh, <laughs> "Ask me about my feminist agenda." So I, I have to ask you, what are you planning to do for International Women's Day? Um, so I'm very proud. I'm going to be with other uh, women's and activists in National Union of Workers. We have a very spe- we will have a very special day and. 
we will invite any worker, <laughs> any woman mm. to come to our meetings because we're going to be very badass. Beautiful. <laughs> Let's put links up on our website, 3cr.org.au slash Monday hyphen breakfast, which is where we're going to have the rundown of the show today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Monday thank Breakfast. You. Thank you. And up next appropriately is Women on the Line. Stay tuned. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.